we have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for 12 months for just $62.99 and save 30% on the newsstand price. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $62.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Welcome to Talking Australia. My name is Chrissy Goldrick, and my guest today is a man who is literally a household name in Australia. His face continues to be a familiar sight on the high street, as it has been since the 1970s, and his exploits have always garnered the media's attention. He's described by Paul Hogan as part Bill Gates and part Bear Grylls, on the cover of his brand new autobiography, My Adventurous Life. He's a business entrepreneur, a philanthropist, explorer, aviator, and above all, he's a proud True Blue Australian. I'm delighted to welcome Dick Smith. Hi, Chrissy. great to be talking to you. Look, the one thing I didn't include on that list, Dick, was that you are, of course, the founder of Australian Geographic. So thank you for doing that. Oh, great. Yes, I used to work at Australian Geographic. I often <laughs> tell people it was one of the best places I've ever worked. Yeah, well, look, I can't... Of course, I have to agree with you. Um, what a great uh, uh, initiative it was to set up our very own geographical magazine. And I'm so thrilled that um, uh, all of these decades later we're still going strong and we've moved uh, beyond magazine publishing which we, of course we still do and absolutely at the center to doing things like podcasts so we're like really keeping up with with all the different ways in which we can communicate with our audience um, but um, the thing about Australian Geographic of course it, it was one of the things that your great uh, business success uh, enabled you to do. Um, and uh, it, it, it's uh, after many years of sort of working in business and electronics, and uh, uh, by the time you reached the age of 38, you really, uh, as you say in your own words, you had made all the money you would ever need to, uh, and you were able to um, turn your attention to the things in life that really important to you and that you loved. and and pursue a whole sort of different lifestyle. But uh, you describe yourself as absolutely hopeless at school. So tell us how someone who is hopeless at school ends up being such a success, because that's not really how we're uh, yes. told that these things work in the normal scheme of things. Yeah, that's right. Now, look, I think, I think the book's going to be important for parents and grandparents who have either children or grandchildren who are pretty dumb at school. They should read my book because it shows that all is not lost in fact, I was so hopeless at school, in fifth class, I came 45th out of 47th in the class. And I couldn't spell. I still can't really spell very well. Couldn't write. And uh, I really had a terrible inferiority complex when I was at school. But luckily, I did okay. And uh, the story is that it's good to have academic qualifications. I give talks to schools and I say... Get as many qualifications as you can, but even if you can't get too many, I'm simply a car radio installer. 
and I have my Baden-Powell Award from Scouts. They're my two qualifications, which I'm proud of. But I say to young people, get as many qualifications as you can, but even if you can't, don't write yourself off because there's still potential to do well. Yeah, and you, so you had this aptitude sort of for gadgets and, and fixing things and, and a real uh, interest in um, uh, radio. Um, and that's and that was really what you found is you found that you actually had a skill. But tell us how you became interested in radio. What what started you on that? Path? Yeah, the fascinating. It, it's all a key to something called Harold's Room. And uh, I'm the grandson of Harold Casno Senior, who is who is a famous photographer. He has works in the National Library, and he's been covered in. Australian Geographic magazine, of course. Well, I used to, I lived opposite the old Casno house and I'd be allowed to go across when my grandpa was developing pictures and taking photographs of the society, high society of Sydney. And occasionally they'd give me the key to Harold's room and I'd open the door and this was a room which was filled with electronics, we'd call it today. They called it radio in those days. And what the story was, Harold Casno Jr., my grandfather's only son had got killed at Trebrook in the siege of Trebrook in the Second World War. And uh, they'd closed up the room, even left the bed all made up. And as a young five-year-old, I was given the key to the room and that gave me this interest in radio, which I happened to turn into a successful business. So it's quite a wonderful story of the family being involved. And that, um, I mean, obviously with a grandfather uh, like Harold Kasner, you were also... Um, introduced to uh, the, somebody who really appreciated and was able to capture the beauty of the Australian bush and where you lived on the North Shore of Sydney, a very bushy area. So even today, it's, it's got you know, plenty of these little wild areas and creeks. And, uh, and that was really where you were most comfortable, wasn't it, Dick, when you were a kid? Yes, I, I used to be able to, I mean, some people would say that my parents were quite irresponsible by today's standards. The rule was we lived in East Rosal above Rosal Bridge and it was all bush, as there's still a lot of bush there today. And my the only rule was when I got home from school was to change out of my school uniform and then be home by dark. So I would disappear by myself out in the bush and uh, I loved the uh, learnt to love the out of doors and the environment. And in fact, it's not well known, but I covered in the book that after I'd failed in electronics and couldn't get any qualifications, I decided to become a National Park Ranger. And uh, so I went and uh, to ask advice, one of the success forces I bring out in the book is surround yourself with capable people and ask advice, ask lots of advice. So I went to ask advice from the National Parks expert at the Koala uh, Sanctuary in Karinga Chase and he was the one who said, Dick, look, the, the bureaucracy in the national parks would kill you. Stick to radio and electronics. And that's what I did. Good advice. Now, uh, you describe yourself as a free-range kid, as you say, uh, but you lack, uh, you lament the lack of freedom of, the, the, of children today, Dick, don't you? It's something that yeah, you do talk about. Yes, I do. And, and I cover that in the book a lot because as a young Boy Scout, I organised an expedition to go and climb on Ball's Pyramid. Ball's Pyramid is this the highest rock spire in the world. It's in the Pacific Ocean, south of Lord Howe Island. We sailed out in a small boat and then had to jump off the boat and then swim and grab hold of a rock face as we started to climb. It was a highly risky activity, but I did that through the scouts and we didn't even ask permission. Now, of course, today such a thing wouldn't be allowed. There are so many rules and restrictions, mainly because 
the scout organisation has been sued in the past because someone got into problems. And uh, that, to me, is a terrible pity that the, the risk-taking that we took when I was young in the 1950s is no longer allowed. Yeah, and it, it's probably not going to come back either, is it? I mean, we, we know that parents these days uh, do appreciate um, that their children are helicoptered or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that the importance of getting kids into nature is something that they do acknowledge. But it's not that easy. It's not that easy to do. And, of course, we've had two years of COVID in which we haven't been able to go anywhere. What What do you think parents can do? I mean, you mentioned scouts just then, and I know that the, the scouts organisation was a huge influence on your life. Uh, what about things like scouts and, and, and what, what role do you think they can play today for parents? Well, well an incredible role. I, I describe the Boy Scouts as the greatest youth leadership organisation in the world and people often say to me, where did you learn the leadership to start Dick Smith Electronics and Australian Geographic and Dick Smith Birds? And I said, well, I learned it in the Boy Scouts, the example set by my scout masters, who were all and still are voluntary and quite an amazing organisation. But I learned, I learned two things, what I call responsible risk-taking, and I also learned uh, the, uh, the, the ideas of leadership. I was pretty hopeless when I was young, but when I got to about 20 years of age, I was elected what they call the Rover Mate, which is sort of the head of the Rovers in our Rover crew of about 20 Rover Scouts. And that taught me how to lead, and uh, that's what I've been using ever since. And that, um, you, you also learned some skills that eventually uh, were going to save your life um, in different situations. Some of the adventures that you've been in have been incredibly risky, and you ha actually have found yourself staring down, I guess, uh, the barrel of your own mortality behind uh, the joysticks of various uh, flying machines. But you started out, you did, you did Boar's Pyramid, as you speak of, but you also had a, a, an adventure in the Colo Wilderness where you really found that you you hadn't made adequate preparations. And that was a big learning, steep learning curve for you. Yes, in fact, that's an important part in the book where I nearly lost my life and those of my two mates in the Colo Wilderness because I'd planned to do this quite difficult bushwalk across what we call the Mount Mistake Maiden Trig area. And it's very wild, it's rough, it's got huge cliffs. And uh, I'd planned to do it in good weather. I got out to what we call Mount Cameron where the walk starts and the weather turned bad. Now, I should have turned back right then, but being at 20 years of age or so, I thought, no, I'm invincible, I'll be okay. And in the end, after the second night, we're out freezing cold in our sleeping bags. I thought, we're going to die tonight. If the temperature goes to freezing, we'll die. Fortunately, the temperature, temperature didn't go down to freezing and we got out. But that walk, and the reason I featured it in my book, is that it taught me what I call responsible risk-taking, and it also taught me something I tell my grandchildren, and that is, it can happen to me. And I, up until then, thought, no, I'm a sensible risk-taker, it won't happen to me. And that walk gave me the greatest shock. I nearly lost my life, and those were my two mates, and it certainly made me very careful in future. Now, you talk about turning back, uh, and uh, what one of the things that I think about adventure, and as you say, responsible risk-taking, is that really that ability to make that decision uh, and not keep going forward. I know for, in, the, in the book you talk about, you know, you think about things that if you keep going, you might have to call out the emergency service or you put other people's lives at risk yeah. to come and rescue you. And what we know about with, um, with, with Everest, we talk about, you know, Everest and, and the risk-taking that happens there and some of it 
is responsible and some of it less so. This ability to decide to turn back is such a critical part of adventuring. And that came into good stead with you later on down the track when you were um, attempting to be the first person to fly a helicopter to the North Pole. Yes, exactly right. I took three attempts in the end. In fact, everyone said to me, why bother, Dick? You know, you've had two attempts and you haven't been able to get there. But I managed to get there on the third attempt. Look, when I flew around the world in that little single-engine helicopter, it was highly risky when I look back on it. And I remember flying across the Atlantic Ocean between Greenland and Iceland. And I got about halfway across and the weather turned bad. And I thought, look, I've really got to go back. I've just got enough fuel to get back to Greenland. But when I turned the helicopter and headed back, the weather had closed in behind me. And here I was orbiting halfway across. I mean, it's about 430 nautical miles, about 800 kilometres. That's further than from, say, Sydney to Brisbane. And I'm over this incredibly wild ocean where I can see bits of icebergs being blown off against each other. I'm sitting there in my tiny helicopter with a little life jacket on, thinking, if I have an engine failure here, I'm going to be in bad position. But also, if the weather is completely closed in the way I'm heading, I'm going to be forced down. Fortunately, I eventually got through to Greenland, to Iceland. But then when I walked into the little coffee shop at the airport, I decided, look, I'm going to put the helicopter on a ship, ship at home and come up with some excuse. It's just far too risky. But after having a cup of coffee and getting warmed up a bit, I thought, oh, maybe it wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. So then I decided, look, I'll at least go on to Scotland because Prince Charles is supposed to be waiting for me at Balmoral Castle, and I'll do that bit, then I'll ship the helicopter home. And, in fact, my whole trip around the world was like that, going from highs when the weather was good to lows when the weather was really bad where I thought I was going to kill myself. Mm, and this is your, you're talking about uh, the 1983 first helicopter flight right around the world. Exactly right. Yeah, first solo helicopter flight and uh, no one had um, attempted to do that before. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, a lot of people said a helicopter is designed as a short distance machine to take TV crews across the city. It's not really designed for long range, but I'd worked out that you could put a big tank in the back and as long as you were prepared to fly it overweight when you initially took off, that there was just a chance you could get right around the world. The biggest problem was the Cold War existed and so you couldn't land in Russia. And so to get across the Pacific Ocean, I had to land on a ship halfway between Japan and Alaska to get refuelled. And I'll tell you what, I was very lucky to get away with that safely. Yes, and I, as you say, I, I tend to think of helicopters as short distance uh, because I tend to think that they probably don't have like autopilot on them or anything like that. <laughs> yes. So how, how, how many hours would you, what was the longest leg of that trip for you in terms of hours flying? Yeah, the longest leg I did was about 13 hours in one day, but that was in about, I think, six hours at a time. So the longest I sat in that little helicopter was six hours. In fact, I did have an autopilot, but mostly I didn't use it. I just flew it by hand or I would put the cyclic, which is the control stick, between my knees. And so I, then I could, I, I was at the same time making a documentary film, recording for sound, taking movie and taking still photographs. So it was certainly a one-man band, but by putting the cyclic control between my knees, I got quite good at flying the helicopter with my legs. And uh, were you in, did you have radio contact throughout? Because I know that one of really your biggest supporter, the person that's been at your side 
all of the years is your wife, Pip, and she's a very, very big part of all of your adventures and, in fact, has been alongside you on many of them. So how important was it to have people like Pip on the end of the radio during that adventure? It was fantastic. Yes, look, see, these were the days before GPS and the days before satellite telephones, and uh, so the navigation was always worrying. But I did have a ham radio set back in Sydney at Terry Hills, and so I could communicate. Pip could at least listen to me. She wasn't really supposed to transmit because she didn't have a ham radio licence, but occasionally she'd give a whistle to know, so I know that she was monitoring. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, my flight right around the world was supported very much by the ham radio operators, especially the shipboard landing where I basically turned off the aircraft radio because it wouldn't work in that area, area I was so far from anywhere, and just used amateur radio to transmit to hands all around the world. Yeah, sounds uh, what an achievement. And it was uh, the first of many uh, aviation achievements. But actually, very soon after that, um, you decided to uh, get out of business. You, In your own words, you, you, you don't necessarily think that constant increasing growth is the right uh, uh, philosophy necessarily in business and you decided to sort of jump ship really and uh, and 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 use your um, I suppose your the opportunity to pursue many other things that you love and so that brings us back to Australian Geographic which you established in 1985 uh, based loosely on National Geographic and also Canadian Geographic. Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, uh, the reason for opening Australian Geographic is it's quite interesting. I'd gone down to the blockade, the famous Franklin River blockade with Bob Brown, and I was assisting because I'd always gone bushwalking in, in Tasmania with Pip and we just loved it. And we were pretty horrified when we heard that they were going to put a dam on the Gordon River below Franklin. And uh, so we went down to support Bob Brown. But the media made out, because I'd had lots of publicity tying icebergs into Sydney Harbour and jumping double-decker buses over motorbikes and things like that, they sort of thought I was just a complete media tart. And so they made out when I was down at the blockade that I had no interest in the environment, that I was just purely there to build publicity for, uh, you know, whatever I was doing at the present time. And that's what gave me the idea. I said, I need to change my image. And I also loved the out of doors, my other main thing. And so the idea came up. I said, well, I'll start a magazine. I was going to call it Roo, R-double-O initially. Mm -hmm. But then someone showed me Canadian Geographic and I thought, wow, if they've got Canadian Geographic, we could have Australian Geographic. So that's where the name came from. And... My plan was to run the magazine for at least five years. To I was prepared to lose up to a million dollars. I never thought it would be profitable. I just thought that it will be a really important magazine. The other thing, and as you know and stick by today, it's a positive magazine. Then most of the media was incredibly negative, especially when it came to adventurers. And uh, they'd say to adventurers, I'll come back and tell us if someone dies. And that's why they're going to be interested in putting it in the newspaper. So the idea was to start Australian Geographic and make it a positive magazine, run it for at least five years and uh, try and donate to charity. Of course, as we now know, that it did incredibly well and it became profitable and has allowed us to give millions of dollars to important causes, and you're still keeping that up today, and I'm very proud that it's, it, it's existed for so long and it's still booming. 
Great. And I, I think it is really interesting that you did say that really is almost like a philanthropic exercise following your passions, but you just could not help making it a success. And I guess yeah. that comes back to that you surrounding yourself with those capable people yeah. and uh, taking advice and, uh, you know, turning what was really a magazine, a quarterly magazine into an entire retail empire, really. at one Yeah, because yeah, I feel a bit embarrassed because I can't write. I can't take photographs, right, but I manage to get the capable people. And what I'm good at, and for anyone who's listening, if you want to do well in business, surround yourself with capable people. You've got to pick the best people. And uh, so I had such a wonderful crew. You've still got really good people at Australian Geographic. I notice the qualities remain the same, and that's credit to all of you. And so it's the matter of there's plenty of capable Australians. You've just got to find them and then motivate them to do their best, and that's what we did. And also, I guess, have the humility to ask for advice and to listen to it when it was given. Exactly right. Look, most Aussies don't ask advice. It's really interesting. And I think one of the advantages in me not being able to get any qualifications, even though I would have loved to have had qualifications, I was never able to do that because I was no good academically. But I think that allowed me to ask advice a lot easier. And so, and it's one chapter in the book, it's only short, it's about my failure in aviation reform. And when I sat down in Canberra on the Civil Aviation Board, the first thing I said was, well, let's copy the best. Let's go around the world and find out who's the best in aviation. And there was silence at the board. It was just completely impossible for them to believe that we in Australia should copy something from overseas. And I still think it's the, the same today. Very few people copy the best. Yes, and I, I think that's exactly right. I think um, I think we, we, we as you say, we, we, we don't want to ask advice because we don't want to expose ourselves to some, some idea that we don't know what we're talking about. And I think it gets in the way of many things and many uh, good decisions. Um, but just tell me what are some of the achievements of Australian Geographic that you're most proud of? Because I know that um, it was the setting up of the Australian Geographic Society after a couple of years is a big part of who we are today and what we yes. stand for. And I mean, there's a lot of philanthropy in, in, in climate with uh, climate change mitigation, conservation, um, and, and this kind of area is huge today. But back in the 80s, it wasn't really a big deal. No, no, look, look, I think I'm most proud, I'm very proud of Australian Geographic, but I'm most proud of the AG Awards and to get invited, you still invite me along to the awards night and to see especially the young Australian adventurers and they're getting encouragement and get finance from the society, which is so important. So that makes me feel very proud. I'm proud that the magazine still exists. How many years old is it now? It's a, coming up for 32 years. 32 years. Well, I'm just really proud that it's gone. The awards night, as I said, is particularly fantastic for me to see that going. Uh, then also the sponsorship we've, we've been able to give. I think I mentioned in the book that we uh, helped build the, the rebuild the Indominka Australian Inland Mission site at Indominka. Also Sir Hubert Wilkins' original homestead. We worked on that. And, of course, the Australian Geographic Expeditions. The very first one we had was at Cooper's Creek and in the Coongee Lakes area. And I mentioned in the book that turned that area, which was completely over open slather for shooters going and killing the freckled duck and most incredible endangered species, we turned that into a national park. And there's so many things I've lost count of that Australian Geographic have done well, both when I was there and since I, I haven't been part of it. Yeah, uh, and, um, you know, those scientific expeditions continue to this day. And the thing that's really changed is we bring our citizen scientists along with us now. 
Yeah, and that's a great idea. That's a brilliant idea. So, but yes. Oh, the other one that I really like doing, and maybe it's something you can think of redoing again, is our couple in the wilderness project, where we had a couple up in the Kimberleys living for a year off the land in effect, and then uh, uh, the couple down in Tasmania who lived in the remote area of Tasmania. Maybe that's something you could look at doing a couple in some remote place again, because it's it'd be interesting to see that sort of 30 years later, can a couple live for a year completely self-contained? You sort of invented the whole Survivor franchise way back in the 80s, didn't you, Dick? Yeah, sort of, <laughs> yes, yes. And in fact, that came, there was a magazine called Alaskan Geographic and they used to talk of couples in Alaska who did live in remote areas. And that's what gave me the idea in Australia to do something sort of similar and to pick a really difficult location and then uh, uh, wonderful, we got wonderful publication out of it and... Uh, uh, Damon Howes and yeah, and they gave it. They gave us a documentary film, which was quite wonderful. Yes, and and um, you, you mentioned about uh, going to Canberra and butting up against sort of uh, you know Canberra and bureaucracy and and things like that. Aviation safety was uh, the, the 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 challenge, I guess, that you tackled yep. after Australian Geographic. But that, as you admit, and in the book, you know, that wasn't one of the things that you did make a success of. Um, but tell us how that, what, why you decided to tackle that. What was it about aviation, and where did you? And I guess it was when you were flying around the world and on your various aviation adventures that you saw things being done differently in different yes. places. Yes, yeah. What happened? I left Australia before to attempt the flight around the world. The flight around the world in the helicopter started in Fort Worth, Texas, where they make the helicopter. I wheeled it out of the factory and headed off. But uh, when I started flying in the USA, I realised how much better the system was. So when I got eventually back to Australia, I tried to make some of the changes here so we could copy the best because I happen to believe that when it comes to general aviation, which is all of the country aviation and anything other than the airlines, that we could be leaders in the world. But it's something that I completely failed at. We have rules which are just so expensive that it means that most of the general aviation businesses can't be viable. And uh, I use the word affordable safety and I was criticised, but can you imagine unaffordable safety? It means you don't have anyone flying. And so what I pointed out in the book that whilst the airlines are okay and pretty well booming and incredibly safe, the general aviation industry in Australia is pretty well, it's almost closed down. I go out to Bankstown Airport or to airports like Broken Hill and there used to be thriving flying clubs and maintenance organisations and lots of people flying, flying schools with training and most of that's gone and it's been a terrible pity to me that that's happened. I'm hoping that once the book gets around and people read the chapter on aviation, that maybe uh, one of the ministers and um, the person in charge is Barnaby Joyce at the moment, maybe he'll put some pressure on and get them to do some reform so we can have a booming aviation industry. Yeah, well... Let's let's see. Uh, now, um, all the way through your book, as I mentioned before, uh, your wife Pip Smith is a, a major factor in in every aspect of your life. So, tell us a bit about Pip. You you met really when you were very young. Yeah, talk about lucky. I mean, I met Pip when she was seventeen years of age, and I must have been twenty one. I'm five years older, and in fact, when I first met her, I thought, gee, she's she's cute. And then I thought, oh, what a pity I'm not five years younger. I could probably take her out because she's really nice. But my scruples, I threw them away after about a week and decided to take her out. We got married when she was 19, I was 24. And then uh, 
we've been together ever since. I think it's about 54 years or something and been married for over 50 years. And, yes, I was incredibly lucky because you don't know how someone's going to turn out. And uh, where I was fortunate is that, uh, well, first of all, she worked with me in the business, Dick Smith Electronics and Australian Geographic, and Dick Smith Foods, always a strong supporter. But um, where I was lucky is that she allowed me to go on these very risky adventures. And uh, because we'd been in the Rover Scouts and she was in the Girl Guides, the Rangers at the time, and we'd gone climbing and canyoning and caving together, she knew a bit of what I call responsible risk-taking. But I asked her once, why did you let me fly solo around the world? That was really risky. And she said, well, Dick, I thought you'd get it out of your system. She thought, you know, she knew that I was an adventurous type person, so she thought, I'll support him on that. It's going to be risky, but hopefully he'll be okay. Of course, since then, I've done five flights around the world and two very risky balloon flights, one across Australia and the other one from New Zealand to Australia. And she did say to me, look, I thought you'd just do one and get it out of your system. (laughs) But then she sort of was forced to support. And when I got away with it, I think, the fact that I'd uh, finish a flight and not be hurt, not call out search and rescue, and I'd somehow enthuse her into supporting me into another flight, in fact, we flew the other way around the world by helicopter from our front lawn at Terry Hills right around the world by Everest and then up into Europe and then across the States, and Pip came with me. So she's actually the first woman in the world to fly around the world west to east. And uh, then, of course, I did the Twin Otter flight, which was vertically around the world, landing at each pole, and Pip came, came with me on various parts of those flights. So... She's a very good photographer and took beautiful photographs, which we published as a book. So I was very lucky not only to marry someone who would support my adventurous activities but would come along whenever she could. And also you took your two girls along on many of these adventures. Yes. They, were, they yeah. met Prince Charles way back in when you were doing the uh, around-the-world flight. And, uh... Exactly right. Yes, our girls are quite adventurous too. I mean, Hayley went and worked when she left school for Lindblad Travel and went on, she was a sort of an expedition leader on the Antarctic boat voyages and up in the Arctic and has got quite an adventurous life herself. Yes, and you've got a, quite a few grandchildren these days. Yeah, yeah, plenty of grandchildren and they are, the, they are the reason I've got that chapter at the end of the book about my concern about, and you touched on it, about eternal growth, that we have an economic system, which I've certainly benefited from, but it requires eternal growth in the use of resources and energy and that's impossible and so I am concerned for my grandchildren that uh, I'm a total believer that humans are affecting the climate and I notice Australian Geographic is which is really good and we're increasing our population at about 80 million every year and there's no discussion on this the United Nations has a policy on human-induced climate change but no population policy And really one of the things we've got to concentrate on is bringing the population growth down so we live in balance and uh, also changing our economic system so it doesn't require eternal growth. And that's going to be hard. And now these are some of the um, the, the issues on which you do lock heads with with lots of people. But I think um, while not everyone always agrees with your views on things like uh, population and immigration, uh, you're universally admired for your integrity uh, and your honesty and your straight talking manner, um, uh, especially in the face of so much, you know, 
false messaging in the media and spin doctoring by industry and our politicians. Um, but Australians still admire you and still look up to you for the fact that they know that whatever you talk about, you absolutely believe it 100% and, and that you'll pursue it as far as you can. Yes, look, I'm very lucky because I became quite wealthy when I was young. I was still in my 30s when I sold out of Dick Smith Electronics. And I said to my solicitor at the time, this is something that's not in the book, but it's interesting. I said, what's the largest payout for defamation so far? And he told me what it was. It was some certain figure. And I said, oh, I can afford that. So that means I can say anything. <laughs> and I'd never say something that could destroy or hurt anyone, but it meant that I have the freedom to be able to say what I believe. And uh, I'm pro, by the way, when it comes to immigration, I'm pro-immigration. I think it's what's made Australia fantastic. But I'm pro-immigration at our long-term average level of about seventy to 80,000 a year. When it ended up at 200,000 a year, it really concerns me because that will take us to a population of 100 million by the end of this century when my grandkids are likely to still be alive. And not that many people, even the growth spruikers, think that 100 million is a sensible number for a country like Australia. We're basically an arid country. So one day we have to learn to operate our system without constant growth. We should be looking at how we do that now. And, and Dick, tell me, uh, after, you know, we've had two years of COVID, I can't imagine how, I mean, it's been hard enough for all of us, but how does somebody like yourself with such an adventurous spirit deal with two years of this kind of lockdown, stay at home? I found it incredibly difficult. Luckily, we were on the edge of the National Park and we were allowed to go walking in the National Park all the time. So we did that. I'm partially driving around, as well as five flights around the world, I've also driven around Australia now one and a half times. And Pip and I have got our four-wheel drive up in Darwin, locked up in a shed, and we're waiting to pick that up. And then we'll drive across the Gulf of Carpentaria and gradually make our way back home. And uh, this the, this trip we've done around Australia, which started a year and a half ago now, just before COVID, it's really shown us what a fantastic country we have. And uh, I've learned that through Australia Geographic, but uh, we are indeed very fortunate people. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are um, ex finally, ex I mean, you know, we've been encouraging people to get out and explore Australia for three decades, as yes. you know, as you started it, and we, we're still carrying that on. And finally, they're getting out there in droves. I mean, huge amounts of people have taken to the roads in the last two years. So that can yeah. only really be a good thing, I think. Oh, yeah, no, I think it is a good thing. And also uh, the fact that you can't travel overseas, it's easier to travel in Australia. And, gee, the number of Aussies I meet who have never been to, say, Cooper's Creek or Coongie Lakes and some of these wonderful places in Australia, they've never been to Cradle Mountain. I mean, you can drive to Cradle Mountain, stay in a luxury hotel there, and it's a magnificent place. So anyone who's listening to this, I tell you, don't get too obsessed with having to go overseas every year have a look at some of the fantastic places in Australia because they're wonderful. Um, Dick, uh, what's next for you and Pip? You know, once we do get out of this COVID, do you have any more? Have you done with your big adventures or what, uh, what's next? I've done with big adventures. Look, I'm lucky to be alive and so I'm not going to push that. All of my heroes, people like Kingsford Smith and Bert Hinkler and Charles Arm, they all lost their lives because they kept pushing the odds too much and eventually caught up with them. So I'm not going to go on really risky things anymore. I'm concentrating. We have a family foundation, which we give money away from. And when we launch the book, we're going to be giving a major grants to about 60 different charities. So that's what I'm spending a lot of my time on. 
Well, it sounds like uh, slightly different adventures, but adventures nevertheless. And of course, your philanthropy uh, just continues to grow uh, and it's a wonderful thing. And you're a great Australian and we're really proud of the fact that you're still the patron of the Australian Geographic Society. And, and it's been really great talking to you today. Thanks very much, Dick. Thanks, Chrissy. I'm glad that you, you, you want me still to be involved because I love it. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email at podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time. Mm-hmm.